0: Hey friends, welcome to the Catalyst podcast. We hope you enjoy what you're listening to and may you find peace and grace in all the words that are before you. So we have taken... Six weeks off of the book of Mark, and we went through Advent, and then last week we looked at John 1, where uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, the Word was with God, uh, and so now we are picking back up in Mark, and we are picking up in the last week of Jesus' life on earth before he was killed and then resurrected from the dead. So we will be in Mark 11 today. You're welcome to turn to there. Uh, the first part of Mark 11, verses 1 to 11, we aren't going to be in today. Um, even though even though it makes sense that we would be because it's the next part of it, uh, we just aren't because it's Palm Sunday, and we will get to Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday. So, But I want us to know that that part of Scripture is really important in moving towards that last week of Jesus' life. Palm Sunday is that time when Jesus enters into Jerusalem on a donkey, if you remember that part of the Bible. He enters into Jerusalem on a donkey. This is a really important thing because this Sunday happens right before Easter. It has to represent peace. That donkey represents the peace that Jesus brings. But it's an incredibly politically motivated The way that Jesus enters into Jerusalem on that last week of his life on a donkey, about the exact same time and the same day that Pilate, who would have been a Roman governor, a ruler of Rome, would be entering on the opposite side of the city into Jerusalem at the same time. But he would be entering in on a war horse with about a thousand troops with him to make sure that there was peace that remained in Jerusalem during Passover. Passover was this, festival that people would, pilgrims would come to, um, into Jerusalem for. Uh, and Passover of course is the, is the celebration, the festival to be remembering uh, when God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt through the prophet Moses. So this was a huge festival that brought thousands and thousands of people into Jerusalem. And most of these people who would be entering into Jerusalem would be coming in to, to go to the temple and make sacrifices to God. This is what is happening during that first portion of Mark 11, which we'll get to on Palm Sunday. So we're going to be in Mark 12, or sorry, 11, 12 to 25. It's really important to understand something before we read this passage. Mark had this way of writing his gospel very intentionally, where he would, it was called the Markan Sandwich, where he would take one thing and interpret another thing through it. So let me give you... Let me make it a little bit more clear. Um, It would be like he'd take portion A as the bread, portion B as the meat or tofu, depending on your preference, and then portion A again as the bread, A, B, A. What we're going to see in this passage is Mark takes a fig tree, and then he goes to the temple, and then we go back to the fig tree again. And the fig tree is supposed to bring meaning and purpose, to that temple portion of scripture, so we'll get to it a little bit more as we go. But I think it's important that we anchor ourselves in there. That that we've got Jesus with the fig tree. He curses the fig tree. He he goes to Jerusalem to the temple. He he uh, drives out the money changers and preaches some super dope message. And then he goes to the fig tree again. We see it that is withered and died. Meat or bread? Meat bread. Okay, let's go. <laughs> We'll be in verses 12 to 25. The next day, okay, so wait, wait. First of all, Palm Sunday, we're on Monday now. This is Monday, and we go from Monday to Tuesday morning in this passage. The next day on Monday, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went out to, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, Go throw yourself into the sea, and does not believe in their hearts, oh, does not doubt in their hearts, but believes what they, they say will happen, It will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in Heaven may forgive you your sins. Yeah, amen. It's like Jesus has the answers to all of life within himself, and yet it was like he was trying to, in some ways, maybe model to his disciples, even though he knows that he's not going to starve to death, he can still experience the truth of what it means to be human and the frustration that might come through that as well. So what I want us to know through this passage, and I kind of want to sink into a little bit, is that there are hungry people out there and in here, and Jesus is meant to meet that hunger through the church. And we all know what it's like to hunger. We all know what it means to hunger for meaning and for purpose in our lives. We know what it means to hunger for justice and friendship and intimacy, to hunger for something beyond yourself that you know is real, even if you can't quite describe it. But you know that you, if you simply get a taste and can finally see, you will know that God is good. The whole thing that leads up to this moment right here, Jesus has spent all this time with his disciples, moving his disciples into a different way of seeing what God was doing in the world that took place outside of the temple, which was something that they had never experienced before. Let's go back to Mark 10, right before 11 Right before Jesus comes into Jerusalem in this last week, it says in verse 50. So he's like healing this blind Bartimaeus man. This is the second time he's healed a blind man right before this. And it says, verse 50, throwing his cloak aside, the blind man jumped to his feet and came to Jesus. What do you want me to do for you? Jesus asked him. And the blind man said, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, said Jesus. Your faith has healed you. And this man's response isn't to go to his family and show what, how amazing this thing has happened in him. Instead, immediately he received his sight and he followed Jesus along the road. Jesus is inviting people to see a new thing that God is doing in the world. And the response that we have once we begin to see it is then to follow Jesus even into that place of that last week where his death would happen, that we finally see that God is good. And I want us to see the depth of this passage, because sometimes most of us, when we read this passage on the surface, what we see is Jesus is a hungry person who picks on a poor fig tree, almost like that hanger sort of thing, and then goes into the temple and picks on these people who are like trying to make a living in the temple. And then it and then just goes back and we see the big tree again and it's like, man, this guy just needs a meal. Get the guy a sandwich or something. He seems really upset. I've heard people talk about this passage from like that surface level. And they call it Jesus' temple tantrum. Like he's a toddler who didn't get his way. Or I've heard it used as an excuse to justify violence because there's a similar passage in John 2 where Jesus apparently creates this whip he uses to move the sellers out. So I want to go a little deeper today, and it's it's a little heady, I guess, um, maybe not, I don't know, it was for me, uh, but I want to look at the temple system and what was going on there that made Jesus so upset in the first place. Some people assume that Jesus was upset because of the animal sacrifices that were happening, and we look at the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross, and we think, well, Jesus was just getting ready to get rid of the whole sacrificial system. Maybe, maybe, but For animal sacrifice, that blood animal sacrifice seems super barbaric to us, but for the Jewish people who would travel far and wide to Jerusalem on this pilgrimage a few times a year, they would come there to offer that sacrifice to God. So when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem during Passover, that festival that I was talking about, Passover was one of the biggest festivals. It would bring thousands upon thousands of people into the city. Most people, who, uh, most people didn't live in the cities themselves unless they were a little bit more wealthy. People who were poor lived outside the cities, the beggars, and then people who were more impoverished would live in, way outside the cities on land that was, at that point, occupied by somebody else. So they would travel into the festivals, and they would go to mainly sacrifice, um, sacrifice in the temple. And a few things about animal blood sacrifice. From the beginning of humanity, if you look at like anthropological aspects of the way that humanity began, um, the most basic way that people would show their respect or value, appreciation, their their love for another person was through gifts or through a meal, some sort of dinner of sorts. And same today, like, you want to show somebody that you care, you bring them gifts and you bring them a meal. When somebody is sick, when somebody is recovering, when somebody is celebrating the birth of a new baby or the job they just got, what we do is we bring them something to celebrate. We bring them dinner to help them recover. We bring them a gift to let them know that we see them, that we celebrate them, that we're hoping for the best in their life. And for ancient peoples, the meal often included meat. And the meat came from the animal that you raised and that you cared for. The animal had to die for you to live. This death to life is a rotation of all things. If you look at compost bins, it is full of living things that are dying that then become soil, so then something else can then grow out of the death of that soil to bring life for you to pick and then it dies, and you eat it, and it continues on the life cycle. Death to life is part of the way that life is. And the same goes for animals dying for food. Now, back then, people knew their food differently than we do today. They, they had a relationship with their food. They ate meat far less than we do today, and they never got their meat wrapped in cellophane it's so far removed from the brutality and the honesty that blood provides. The, the realness of what that animal represented to the people then. For these ancient peoples, you show your love through food and through gifts. It was a form of connection and intimacy. And I, I believe that our creator knew this was the way that humans connected So God used the familiarity of the blood animal sacrifice as a tool for greater connection. And the temple then continued the process of that connection-making format. When you love and you care for and you honor the divine being that you serve, you bring them a gift and a meal. And for the Jewish people, this looked like sacrifice. And sacrifices happened in the temple. This wasn't something that God hated because it was actually a form of worship that made sense to God's people and it honored God. So when it came to the buying and selling of animals in the temple, maybe we think like, oh, well, Jesus is just really upset that they're like selling stuff around there. Maybe, but this was this was just another way for the people to honor God. The animals had to be of a certain quality to be considered good enough to bring honor to God. Uh, And if a family, many families, especially during this season, would be traveling long distances to get to the temple for these festivals, that they would want to have something that was a good enough quality. This great distance, and they're traveling with their animals. What if the animal gets injured? What if the animal gets attacked? What if the animal gets damaged in some way? It would no longer be considered clean enough for the temple sacrifice. Hence, buying a blemish-free animal near the temple. It was a way to continue the honoring and serving and worship of God. So what is the problem here? Why did Jesus arrive to the temple in such a tizzy if the temple was the place where people who loved God could get close to God's presence with their gifts and food to worship and honor and glorify God. Why would Jesus arrive in such a manner if this was where people experienced the presence of God? Keep. Let's go back to uh, Mark 11. It says in verse 15, On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those Israel has a super long history. If you look throughout the Bible, you can read it again and again throughout the Old Testament. This history of being commissioned and called by God to be the kind of people who love God and love each other. And the way that we were called to love each other was was to care for the outsider, the marginalized, the immigrant, the refugee, the foreigner, the eunuch, the disabled, the people on the outside of normal life that is what it meant that we were that that the israelites were supposed to care for people outside on the margins as much as they cared for themselves and god believed that the israelites could be the kind of people for the common good of creation and for god's glory to be displayed so the temple then was meant to be this kind of signpost pointing the rest of the world all of the nations to the glory and might of god in the world it was meant to be the 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 place where everybody could look to and see and know that God was for the love of all the nations. That everyone was included in God's love and God's worship and God's honor. And time and again, we read throughout scripture that Israel lived like beautifully into her purpose of revealing the God who loves. But then time and again, we also read how she lived horribly away from her purpose by being self-focused and power-hungry. But again and again, we read that God never gives up on Israel, continues to pursue her, speak life into her, challenge her, encourage her through prophets, these mouthpieces of God. And they would warn and they would plead for Israel to wake up, to see how the leaders were leading the people astray by allowing all sorts of evil to persist. One of the prophets' names was Jeremiah. There's a book that he wrote, essentially. And Jeremiah was one of God's prophets who God asked to plant his feet next to the temple gates and shout out a message that God had for the religious leaders. So turn with me to Jeremiah 7. We'll be back in Mark 11, so you can keep your finger there if you want. Jeremiah is in the Old Testament. It is right after Isaiah, which is one of the biggest books besides Psalms. And right before Ezekiel. In the middle to the right. (laughs) So Jeremiah 7 will be in verses 1 to 11. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. If you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury? Burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known. And then come and stand before me in this house, which bears my name, and say, we are safe. Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I've been watching, declares the Lord. Ha! That is heavy! Oh man. You guys, the temple, in all of its forms at this point in the world, it looked the healthiest it had ever looked people going up to the temple so the temple was was first built by Solomon and then it was destroyed a number of years later and there was no temple and then eventually the, the people were Israelites were brought back from Babylon and back into their their spaces of, of Jerusalem they were able to rebuild the temple and the temple was just this really basic structure. It was super super simple and basic. And about 30 years before Jesus, uh, I think it was 30 years. I might be a little bit off on the time, but it was before Jesus. Shortly before Jesus, uh, there was a king named King Herod. He was a puppet king. He was placed by uh, by Rome, appointed by Rome. Uh, he had remodeled this temple, this very basic temple. He remodeled it not in like a fresh coat of paint, but actually like covered it in gold and put marble all over the place. This was one of the most incredibly, vastly beautiful, lavish places of worship. He dumped a preposterous amount of money and wealth into the temple. It was a house of worship fit for a king. And it revealed the royalty of God in the ways that anyone would expect. The way that Rome worked during this time is that they would conquer different lands and peoples, and then they would use the leadership systems that were already in place. So for Israel at this point, their leadership system was the priests and the temple leadership. So Rome then went in, and they appointed governors over that area, and then they would have a high priest that would be appointed. The high priesthood was appointed by God, but yet Rome, the way they did it is they got rid of those high priests and they put their own in there, who then they could then hire and fire based on if the priest was doing the things that Rome wanted them to do. So they had to follow the rules. Their rules were no longer God-based. They were Roman-based, so they wouldn't lose their jobs. If the high priest wanted to keep his job, he had to play by a different set of standards. And so this passage that we read today takes place during Passover, during March or April, and everyone would have known, since we just took all this time on the temple, everyone would have known that this was not the season for figs. (laughs) I know it's a weird jump here, but Mark even writes. So go back to Mark 11, verses 12. It says, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. The text says Jesus was hungry. You all know that that, that feeling of hunger, that, that sense of, of, of it where it's difficult to focus on anything else because you're just really hungry you just need to meet that hunger. And Jesus sees a fig tree in leaf. Did you know that if there is a fig tree with leaves on it, there should be fruit. Maybe the fruit isn't ripe yet. Maybe it's just tiny little nubbins that are on the stocky branches. But if there are leaves, there should be fruit nonetheless. The tree had the appearance of health and providing what it was created to provide. But when Jesus got close enough to look under the leaves and examine the tree, he found it was nothing but a shady bush. The temple was designed, was meant to point people to the purposes of God in the world. It was meant to bring honor to God, to remind people who God is, the, the one who desires mercy, not sacrifice. The one who reshapes hearts and minds from ones of jealousy and, and gossiping and lust and anger into ones of compassion and mercy and kindness and self-control. The fruit of the Spirit. And for a long time, the temple looked the apart. It was still providing all the sacred rules and all the important practices. There were leaves on the tree that made you think that things were going great. But if you got close enough, you would see that the temple was just another building, unable to provide the fruit it was advertising, and causing the people to walk away just as hungry as when they arrived. The temple system was no longer pointing to the truth of God's love and was instead pointing back to itself. And it was robbing the people from God's love and starving them in the process. So we have to ask the question, what is robbing the truth of God's word from our churches and from our lives? What is robbing God's truth from catalysts? What is robbing God's word from your own life? God's word, this, this gospel reading, has as much truth for us today as it would have had for those listening when Mark first wrote it, as much as for those that were going through it with, their, with, 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 uh, the Mar- with Mark and with the disciples in that time that they were going through it. And, and I have to ask the question, what are we called to through this passage? If the temple was supposed to be a place that showcased God's justice in the world, being a place where all people could come and worship God, even though it wasn't quite so totally close to God's presence, are we silent in spaces of injustice? Is it easier to ignore the cry of the oppressed because it feels so far from you and doesn't wholly affect you? What injustices have you experienced or heard of that causes anger, and rage that such evil still exists in the world in such force. Because Jesus entered the temple with a holy frustration. He came in with a righteous anger that God's house was a place where the best of Israel was invited to the best seats and the nations were then who were fully invited by God were actually being excluded and kept out. Jesus came in to be to be met, his hunger to be fed, and instead was met by an empty tree. I mean, Jesus preached that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice will be filled and satisfied, but so far, all he's seeing is a bunch of leaves with no fruit. So his righteous anger and holy frustration was shown in pointing out the evil that was done in the name of God. What types of tables would Jesus overturn today? Yeah. What kind of chairs would he throw against the walls in his hunger and thirst for justice to be done? What temples and churches need to be cleared out so God's name of compassion and justice for all the nations and peoples can actually be declared? Later on in the Bible, we read that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. What tables of blindness and evil and ignorance in our own hearts need to be turned over and repented from so good fruit of love and compassion, justice, and truth can actually grow and flourish? How do we become that signpost pointing the rest of the world to the grace and goodness of God? If we house the Holy Spirit within us, then what is actually robbing us? from presenting the spirit of grace and truth. What is stopping that from happening? People are starving in the world. They are hungry for meaning and purpose and justice and hope. And we, the church, either keep ignoring their need or we feed them with some sort of blessed hashtag or meaningless offers of prayer that maybe there are some good. I mean, there are good prayers. There are people who pray. But I think a lot of times we just say, I'll pray for you. And we go on in our day. There's not actually prayer that can move mountains happening. What people need is Jesus Christ, the fullness of God, not housed in some sort of brick-and-mortar institutional church building, but in the hearts of those who have placed their faith in him. Jesus is the bread of life our souls hunger for. Jesus is the living water our hearts are parched for. And it is the Holy Spirit who lives within us so we can actually bear that good fruit that satisfies all hunger. Before we go into our time of response, I was thinking about that last part of the passage, which I really didn't get to very well, but uh, verses 22 to 25 about prayer and that mountain. If anyone says this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they say will happen, it will be done for them. I think that there is something to be said about the mountains that live in, in, that are in our way, and I don't think that I don't. I don't know if Jesus was pointing to like a specific mountain. I wonder if he was pointing to the mountains that are in our lives and in our hearts. And when we are praying against those mountains, if we're saying, "I need you to move," I man, that takes everything within us. That kind of prayer is the kind of prayer that actually shapes us into different kinds of people. And I think what Jesus is saying here is that. There are things that block us, that rob us, that take our bodies as the temple of the Holy Spirit and make them into something that is not good for the nations of the world, but is only good for ourselves. And Jesus is saying, what is in the way of my spirit moving through you? Pray against it. Jesus, we pray against those things, whatever they are in our lives. But Lord, more than anything, we thank you that you are the God Who has created a good work within us. That you have called us by name. That you have created us to do good things for your glory in the world. That you have created us to be your temple, the temple of the Spirit. May we be the kinds of people that shine forth your love, your justice, your mercy in this world. May we be bold in that. May you guide and direct us. And Jesus, may we never stop being hungry for the truth of your word. May we see the areas that we need to let go and repent of. May you wash out any area that is not of you. And may you lead us in your ways of everlasting grace and truth and love. We thank you. We praise you. In your name we pray. Amen. Every week that we gather, we uh, take communion. This is our way of remembering that Jesus is the life. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And we uh, have bread that represents Christ's body for us. We have juice that represents his blood shed on the cross for the forgiveness of anything, any mountain in our way.